there's a number of considerations that can be done early on in the design of a project to really facilitate a easily managed and highly efficient solar system. Welcome to the Solar Maverick Podcast. My name is Benoit Thanjan. I'm excited to have our guest, Chris Grablitz, who's the Vice President of Business Development at PV Pros. PV Pros is a nationwide full-service solar maintenance and company specializing in owner's engineering operations and maintenance for commercial and utility-scale solar PV systems. They're based actually in Hoboken, New Jersey. We're in their beautiful offices, which is right near the PAT station. I'm excited personally to have Chris on the show because I always feel like Chris really has a pulse of what's going on in the industry, and he brings like a wide perspective because I feel like you're always like reading and your experience with different people in the industry, and I feel like you have like a very well-rounded kind of approach than say if you talk to one segment of the population, they're only could talk about this, but I feel like whenever I talk to you, you provide really like an all-around and diverse perspective because you're always trying to learn and, and grow. So I'm excited to have Chris on the show and excited to hear about his story. You know, I know you were talking about how you really got interested in solar in college. And then can you talk about your career path? I know you've worked with several solar companies and you got your first job right out of the financial crisis. And it's kind of exciting to hear how your career has progressed. and Yeah, thanks so much, Benoit. I mean, first, I want to thank you for asking me to join today. Not just the praise on my end, but you yourself are a legend in the industry and have a lot of respect for what you've done. And just want to say thank sure. you for having me. Sure. Thank you for being on the show and our first few podcasts. So uh, it's really exciting and looking forward to hearing more about your story and your perspective on the industry. Yeah, hopefully we'll uh, in a few years, we'll get to look back on uh, a couple more podcasts from now. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So I joined, uh, you know, right in the heart of the financial crisis. I got out of college. I had a bachelor's degree in applied physics and nanotechnology from Lock Haven University in Penn State. And I was lucky enough while studying my undergrad, really early on my first physics class at college, my teacher, professor there inspired me by asking a question open to the class saying, what is the most abundant source of energy? And there was multiple answers that were given, uh, you know, nuclear, fission, you know, people were going really in depth. And uh, he stopped and said, no, that's the sun, you know, the sun is the most abundant source of energy. And, and that really stuck with me. And luckily, that professor became my advisor and, and gave me the opportunity to pick up some research for my senior project on modeling and manufacturing as well as testing semi-transparent solar cells. So I really got hooked. That research allowed me to get into an internship with a solar thermal and photovoltaic system integrator out in California and build my resume. And I was able to get out of college and get a full-time position within a month of graduating. That's amazing. And for your internship, were you actually based in California as well during that time? Yeah. So uh, we packed up the car a couple days after graduation or summer break rather, and uh, packed up the car and drove out to the Bay Area. And I worked out of a town called Union City while I was working for a company called Shuko USA. Mm -hmm. uh, great experience. I spent the entire summer out there and uh, was taken under the wing by a really great great boss and supervisor out there who's still in the solar industry. His name's Dan Retz. He's a great guy. And uh, cut my teeth on designing systems with them 
Sure. So you did a lot of, like, at that time, preliminary PV overlays, engineering reports. So that's actually great because that kind of helped you to get your next job because you already had specific experience in the industry. And that's similar to what you did at Fister Energy, right? In the beginning, at least. It sounds like you had a project engineer and then was promoted to a project manager. Is that how that happened? And that's basically a month. And that's 2000. 10. So in solar years, Chris has been in the industry for almost seven to eight years. So you've definitely seen the ebbs and flows and and it's like dog years, like every one solar year is like three or four (laughs) regular years. So uh, I think the best thing about the ups and downs in the industry is it's built strong character. You know, everyone has been tried and tested and ultimately came out on the other side stronger and some people had to change their attack or their position in the industry to subside these changes but at the end of the day you know smooth seas don't make for good sailors and that's that's what this industry is all about it's just riling together facing adversity and pushing through and coming out the other side definitely and at the end of the day too we all know that solar's growing faster and faster i mean it's crazy if you think about 2010 and now how much mm-hmm. bigger the industry is, even with the ups and downs. And obviously, when we reach grid parity, then it'll be even crazier growth, but not the ups and downs, because you're not dependent on state level legislation and federal, obviously, legislation. It's just purely based on economics. And, and that makes it a lot easier to... I think just the general awareness from the common person, common business owner, homeowner, even now with renters in the mix with community solar coming in you know you just have a a broader range of general knowledge of what solar is when i first got in the industry explaining what solar was how it worked was step number one yeah we've jumped so many rungs on the ladder where we're now explaining what's the best uh, technology that's out there how can i incorporate storage into this you know how how can i design to really mask how i use power and contribute to producing the most efficient power and the most cost-effective power from start to finish. For our listeners who don't know, community solar is basically a utility-scale solar project, and then you're basically able to sell the electricity to both residential and commercial and industrial customers through virtual net metering in the utility service territory. And it's it's probably one of the fastest-growing sectors within solar is community solar because you're able to offer solar to a group of people who might not necessarily have the money or the space to have a solar array. So it's exciting to kind of see what's been happening with community solar. Can you talk about, obviously, your first job out of school? You were you were at Fister Energy. You worked first as a project engineer and project manager. I mean, that was actually an exciting time to be in the solar market in New Jersey specifically, right? Because at that time, as we talked about before, it was there was a 30% cash grant which was a 1603 grant. And then SREX, which is like the tradable commodity in New Jersey, was also high. So I felt like there's so much development and construction and you were working for, you know, Fister, which is an EPC. Can you talk about right coming into the industry? I'm sure it was like a crazy time and busy time for you. When I joined Fister, I, I was brought in as a design engineer. So I was supporting both the sales side of the company and the project deployment side of the company with system designs, layouts, uh, single line drawings, construction packages. And then as I started to become more familiar 
working under the director of engineering and project management, Rick Ivins, who's now the owner of PV Pros and Pure Power Engineering. You know, he was my mentor coming into this, you know, learning what the different symbols on a drawing needed to be and how drawings needed to be formatted in order to get built. So gaining that experience, then going out in the field, pulling from some of my early experience living in a family-owned construction company, knowing my way around a construction site, you know, having my first set of work boots at the age of eight, (laughs) you know, I, I was able to really get out in the field, see what was going on, take that information from the drawings and apply it in the field. And as I became more comfortable with how the projects were being deployed in the field, I was able to start really managing projects and subcontractors and vendors. So that just transitioned to from project engineering into project management. Sure. I know you mentioned Rick Ivins, who owns PV Pros and also Pure Power Engineering. When did the transition happen from moving to Fister to then, was it when the company first started or was it sometime after that? Or how, how did that whole transition uh, happen? Rick sought to start his own engineering company, which, which at the time was Pure Power Systems. Roughly a year into Rick starting Pure Power Systems, he had asked me to come over and to start uh, the complementary side of his engineering company on the installation side. Sure. So, so a year into Rick's tenured with Pure Power Systems, I'd come in to start building what was the construction division at, at the company. Definitely. Yeah, we ran construction projects, so we kind of were facing customers with from two different angles. We were designing systems um, and then coming back and proposing to do the installations. And that grew over three years. We went from no employees with no division to 35 employees operating in five different states. Um, It was great. But again, as the industry changed, instead of instead of trying to do new things, we we decided to look back at what our core competency was. You know, as the leadership of the company, Rick is, you know, one of the best engineers in the solar industry. You know, I had built a, a really strong knowledge of quality control and project management, uh, as well as the testing procedures needed to commission and then starting to get more involved with these projects. And the customers, they're asking us to go to other sites to do service work and maintenance work. So we said, hey, you know what, this is this is more closer to our engineering roots. So let's stop trying to build projects that was becoming commoditized and let's start really focusing on what needs to happen. And that's increase the quality control during these builds and also uh, improve the efficiency of how to operate these plants. So so we pivoted the construction division into technical services. And that's that's where we are today. And, and you know what, looking back, it was tough to do. It was kind of tough to start from scratch again. But uh, man, do we have such a great team now. It's amazing to, to see the direction the company has gone and the skills that we've been able to hone and the new folks on the team that have really helped out and grow the business to where it is today. Sure. And that's kind of interesting because you you were a project manager. You kind of talked about this director of field services managing 35 people, which is and in five different states and maximizing construction quality and O&M. And then really, it's crazy. It's almost been two years that now you're actually been involved in the business development side. So from a very technical background to then like a sales background, can you talk about 
And we've talked about this before, actually. For example, I come from a finance background, then moving to starting my own company and then doing sales. Like, How has that transition been? What are you learning or what, what advice do you have for people in sales? I know you, know you really worked on really building the book of business for you know, PV pros. So can you talk about like your experiences and what suggestions you would have for people who are going in or already in sales? Yeah. So I don't want to say I, I am a sales master or, you know, I certainly don't have the sales experience to come even remotely close to some of the, the career salespeople out there. But, you know, I just looked and said, hey, what do I know really well? What do our customers look like? Um, what are the problems that they're facing? And pulling from my past experience and saying, I know what you're up against. And this is how I was able to get through it or leveraging other people on my team and saying, this is the problem this customer is facing. How can we help them solve it? And being able to know when we brought value to that relationship and also being able to confidently say to the customer, if we couldn't bring value to that, we could use our network of folks that we knew that we worked with over the past eight years or so and be able to connect people so that they can solve problems easily. Yeah, definitely. And It's also business development, but then also like our podcast is about entrepreneurship. And I feel like you're an entrepreneur basically for you were basically at Pure Power at the first year that it started. And then you started kind of the one who really started PV Pros. Can you talk about what have you learned from, you know, working in a small entrepreneurial environment? You know, now I know, obviously, you've hired a lot of new people at that specifically focused with PV pros, specifically on the, the sales and business development side. Can you talk about like that experience? Sure, sure. Versus I, being in a big formal staff, which I don't think you've actually ever y- been. Yeah, no, I've, so. I've always been at a, at a relatively small company, I think under 50 employees everywhere I've, I've ever worked. So I missed out on a couple of opportunities to gain that knowledge working for a large company. But what you know, I've been able to forge out of working in a small company is that everyone has to be able to, you know, wear a couple different hats. And you know, when the work isn't done, there's no one else that's going to pick it up. There's no second shift to come in and clean up after. You know, it has to get done. So I think the biggest thing I learned has been that it's all about building the team. You have to have great people surrounding you that are working in unison to achieve the common goal. And for PV pros, one of the biggest pivotal points was when, you know, Jesse Waters had joined the team and took away half a hat that I was wearing on the operations side of the company and was able to transition fully into business development, knowing that Jesse and his experience and just his dedication towards, you know, solving problems and making the team stronger I didn't have to look back. I knew he was taking it and doing everything he could possibly do to make that facet of our business strong. Sure. And it's interesting because the solar world is so small that Jesse and I actually used to work at another EPC called Vanguard Energy Partners. And then actually Jesse's wife, Suzanne, actually, who I worked with at Vanguard Energy Partners, works for Renew Energy, and she's actually in another podcast interview. So it's kind of crazy. In the industry, it's all you know, very small. It's about relationships. Everyone's kind of known each other for a long time. And it's almost sometimes musical chairs, right? Because a lot of people are changing different companies. And Yeah, I always tell the story whenever there's a tough situation with somebody outside of the organization that you have to understand that 
do whatever you can to make sure you end things amicably. You don't ever burn a bridge. I tell the story quite often that a gentleman in the industry was an intern on my team at one point, and now he is part of the decision-making team at a company that you know we're actively working with on closing in operations and maintenance portfolio. You know, so just that complete 360 and going from intern to decision maker is, you know, humbling all the time for me. And I try to tell that to everyone. This this industry is small. It's incestuous. Uh, <laughs> if you don't make sure you have strong relationships across the board, it could potentially close a door down the road. Definitely. It is so true. Can you talk about, obviously, you've seen a lot of different projects from an O&M perspective. What makes a, a good project from an O&M perspective? What are the things that you look at when you look at the project? Yeah, I mean, it starts the design of a project. There's a number of considerations that can be done early on in the design of a project to really facilitate a easily managed and highly efficient solar system on-site quality control during those builds is extremely important. You know, it prevents punchless items during construction from bleeding over into your operating expenses as corrective repairs. You have to make sure that you you have a project that's ready to operate. And then I think the last and probably one of the most important things is commissioning and documentation of the project. That project might get built on the order of weeks or months. It's going to operate for, you know, 20 plus years. So you need to have everything inspected, documented, your performance baselines in place so that you know where you started. So as your system grows in age and things do change over time, you have your baseline to see where you're straying and make sure you keep charting your course um, towards a successful ROI on that project. Sure. You know, it's interesting because people, I think, think that just because it's solar, which you would think is a simple installation, but there's varying degrees of construction quality, of, of design quality of materials as well that, that you know companies are using. How is PV Pros different from other O&M providers? I feel like this is me as an outsider to O&M, but I feel like there's now so many O&M providers because it's a huge opportunity, right? There's so many now solar projects that are now in service compared to, can you imagine, like seven years ago? Mm-hmm. What makes PV Pros different from other providers out there? I think in general, there's there's two classes of O&M providers. There's O&M providers that solely focus on O&M or have a, a standalone division within the company that focuses on O&M. And then you have other companies that do O&M as a, either out of a necessity from a, an EPC contract or kind of inherit these tasks. So it's a secondary business within the organization yeah. or it, it doesn't even get looked at as a business model within a business. Sure. So, so you have those two distinguishers and, you know, something that PV Pros prides itself is we focus on O&M, you know, that there, we don't build projects we're not developing projects. Uh, we have our sister company that Pure Power Engineering that designs project. We are two completely separate entities. We don't share operational resources between the two companies. The other thing that we we saw as a point of differentiation to bring more value is starting our O&M responsibility as early on as during the engineering phase. We pulled that under our owner's engineering umbrella. So when we're brought in as an owner's engineer, typically an owner 
will hire an EPC contractor, which will deliver the engineering of a project, will procure the materials, and then they will construct it and deliver an operating project. So the owner will retain a company like PV Pros to oversee the design process and review the design where we can make critical decisions that will both reduce capital expenses, but also operating expenses. Mm -hmm. And during that design consideration, we're looking at the materials that are being selected, not just looking at, hey, how much does this cost, but how much does this cost to operate as well? You have to look at the total cost of energy. Definitely. And then once the project is under construction, we're doing periodic quality control inspections. We're managing that the rolling punch list, making sure that the agreed upon design is out there getting deployed properly and that the workmanship is at or above industry standards, building codes, national electric codes are all being upheld and the project is going to be safe to operate and ultimately will perform based on, you know, the yield models that were, that it was designed to. And then once a project is ready to energize, we're overseeing the commissioning of that project. And all while we're doing throughout this process, we have all these dials that we're turning to hone in on what the operations and maintenance budget is going to be. Mm -hmm. And we have opportunities to turn some dials down and get some costs down. So that I think is is a very unique thing that PV Pros does in the O&M space and that we're not just kind of inheriting these operating projects, but we're getting involved and we're, we're getting ahead of some of the issues that we see when we do inherit a project and say, hey, this if this was done differently, we would have avoid, avoided this expense. That's really great insight. If it's done really well, what is the real useful life of a solar project? Uh, you know, there's there's solar cells that were made, you know, 40 plus years ago that still provide power. They don't provide the same power they did sure. the first day that they that they started to operate. But yes. you know, there's no reason you know, everyone kind of looks at the or says like the 20 25 year lifespan of a solar system because that's in line with the longest warranty sure. or the modules. But these systems will produce far longer than that and I think we have to make sure that you know we get to that 25 years successfully and then after that those are still good contributing years if we're if we have a performance warranty at 80% come year 25 you're still talking about you know a 1 megawatt capacity plant that can produce 750 kw still a successful plant still still operates as it was intended that is so true Going to something a little bit different, you know, obviously, um, due to electricity costs, sunlight and state level incentives, you'll see more projects in certain areas. Like what states are you seeing the most activity? Obviously, you work in business development and O&M, but uh, what's like the most popular states right now that you're seeing? We've been very focused in the Northeast because that's where we're based out of. Um, We have technicians spread from Maryland on up to New Hampshire. So first and foremost, we have to keep our technicians busy with work. But as our client base has expanded their projects to other states, they've asked us to follow them and to be able to provide these services. So we've seen, you know, a lot of irons in the fire in Illinois, Indiana. Oh, yeah, Indiana. Indiana. Pennsylvania. And recently, you know, with the SMART program, getting a little bit more clear on when things are going to start coming to fruition. Massachusetts has picked up and New Jersey as well. You know, New Jersey's due to go through pretty significant transition. So 
it's uh, although very unclear, it's looking very hopeful that the state of New Jersey will have a very strong push in the next three years. Sure. Yeah, it's exciting what the governor has proposed, and it'll be interesting to see the changes to the new program for solar. They're sunsetting the ESHRAC program and coming up with a transition program Mm -hmm. and then basically a more permanent program, which is going to be a lower cost to ratepayers and uh, be a fixed incentive than an ESHRAC, which is a tradable commodity that's Mm -hmm. more variable. So. Yeah, and you have community solar, community and solar incentive. We're running there, you know, the state's running pilot programs and that's new to New Jersey. It's not new to the U.S., but, you know, New Jersey is the most densely populated state. There's a significant amount of folks in New Jersey that are well above the median income line that, you know, need help with things like utility bills. So being able to subscribe to these community solar projects uh, and lower their utility bill rates just makes sense. You know, you have to be able to distribute the power. And that's, you know, solar at its core essence is distributed power. It's decentralizing where power is produced, placing it in, in the locations where power is needed, and ultimately getting it to the folks that need it. Sure. Definitely. I mean, I think community solar is a huge opportunity as far as access. And I think the interesting thing with that pilot program that New Jersey has is like 30% of the offtake has to be low income customers. So it'll be interesting to see how financiers get comfortable with that and the customer acquisition and management. So we'll see what happens with that. What other trends are you seeing in solar? I know you're pretty well read <laughs> and and kind of see like emerging things. I know, you know, we talked about the New Jersey legislation. You know, what I would love to hear about too is I know you mentioned storage. Mm-hmm. What is really the viability of solar plus storage? You know, from what I could tell, storage right now is too expensive to really make it work or there's no like long-term contracting. Mm-hmm. For example, I've looked at the PGM market with ancillary services, and the difficult thing is financiers like basically stable cash flow streams. What are you seeing when it comes to solar plus storage and the opportunity? Obviously, when you go to all the conferences, everyone's talking about it. There's so many conferences. But if you look at real like activity that has happened in the U.S., there hasn't been like a significant development of solar plus storage projects. Storage has a lot of benefits. The most apparent one is shifting loads. Obviously, you can store power when you don't need to use it, and you can release that power from the batteries in times that you do need to use it. So you can start expanding your daily window of when your power gets deployed. You know, that's pretty well understood. Sure. But the challenge with storage is that all the other benefits, grid services, resiliency, those things, there's not a financial tool to leverage those in every state. There's no one size fits all. This is the benefit that it provides to the utility grid or the other consumers that are on that local grid. How do we value that as a service? And once the utilities can sit down at the table with the technology providers and the integrators and understand, you know, from the utilities perspective, this is what we need the integrators and the technology providers say, okay, this is how we can solve that. And then they start to hash out the details on what's the value of providing that service to you. Then we can start making some strides and 
coming up with some financial mechanisms to deploy this. Sure. It's there. It's ready. I think it's just new. And no one wants to make the quick decision, which is good. But I think at this point, we need to put our foot a little bit closer to the floor and (laughs) and start to move towards coming up with those financial mechanisms so that we can deploy more storage. It's a great technology. I mean, when you start to have DC solar power, you've got DC coupled storage. It's five years from now, there won't be solar without storage considered with the project. It's just hand in hand as long as those financial mechanisms are there and it makes sense. Definitely. Yeah, and it's exciting because like lithium ion battery prices have been going down substantially, kind of similar to what we saw in solar five or six mm-hmm. years ago. The other thing too is like I think states are really trying to come up with incentives. Like the smart program has solar plus storage. There's an adder yeah. for storage and then New York as well. There was just actually a webinar today on storage and New Jersey as well. They're talking about having a storage program. So it's exciting. A lot of states are really trying to look into it. And, you know, I think that could be a huge thing. And with the continued decreases of energy storage. Yeah. uh, And you've got these really strong initiatives for 100% renewable energy, setting these markers 30 years out, there's no way to do that without storage. You know, we can't, obviously, the sun won't shine for us at (laughs) night. Um, You know, so we'll need things like storage and and other renewable sources to contribute the power that's desired by the consumers during the evenings. Definitely. And I think, too, another big thing is like peak demand Mm -hmm. charge reduction as well. A huge thing, obviously, with storage, you kind of talked a little bit about that with the load shifting, which would actually lower like peak demand charges as well. So like, I think the software too is a big component of it, right? Yeah. Like really the right software solution. So it's not just purely the battery as well, but the software being able to maximize the use of the battery. It can be a very complex system, but at the end of the day, it must be, it can't be so complex that it's impossible to operate. And it's got to be able to operate from the most complex utility size scale projects down to the individual residential homeowner size projects. So the technology within the controls, within the deployment and schemes for things like reactive power and, you know, frequency balance and, you know, load shifting and those key features of storage, it, it, it has to be, it has to be uh, kept simple. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I was going to say is like, I think you're the only person I know who's only been in the solar industry, which is pretty amazing. Like, what suggestions do you have for people looking to get into the solar industry? First, I'd applaud them and say, go go after it. You know, it's a great industry to be in. You know, there is folks in the industry that have been in the power industry for 30 plus years. There's folks like me who got in there less than a month after getting out of college. I think that you have to do your research. You have to understand the general concept of, of solar, you know, use your resources. There's so many, there's so much information out there and there's so much free information. You know, there's news media channels that you can subscribe to. There's great podcasts like, like the, uh, the solar Maverick, yep, you know, you. <laughs> I, I listen, I listen to, uh, a number of podcasts regularly. I, I enjoy listening to the, uh, clean capital experts only podcast, the energy gang, suncast, GTM has a great one too. And they talk about real relevant topics with people in the industry and they speak about their experiences. So, you know, you have to do your own research. You have to 
you have to go on the offense. You have to really want to get into this industry. If you're a high school student that's looking to get into the industry, you know, you've got two really great paths. And I think that either direction you go, they're both fantastic. I'll say first, the, you know, the blue collar path, getting into the trade, uh, you've got electricians, you've got highly skilled uh, laborers, you've got folks that do rigging, all different segments within that, within that space, they're going to be at very high demand in the next upcoming years. You have a, a large retiring class of blue collar folks. And, you know, a lot of people are going more into the 40 year degrees, working in more desk jobs. Uh, so I see a really big opportunity for tradespeople. And then if you do want to go after, you know, more of a desk job, engineering, finance, project management, there's great programs at a lot of different schools out there, both associate programs and four-year bachelor degrees. While you're in those programs, or even if you're on the, the blue-collar track, do things that are either are internships or resemble internships. They don't pay well, but the experience is, is invaluable. Everything to build your resume is absolutely critical. You know, you have to, you think of, uh, you've seen some things out there where, you know, they're looking for an entry level person that has 40 years of experience (laughs) and, you know, wants to take that entry level salary. It's funny. It's a joke. But, you know, in all reality, when, when everyone starts at that entry level position, the things that differentiate you are your knowledge of where you're going, the things that you've done, your experiences like internships or presenting your research, your own personal research, and being able to differentiate yourself from other people that a hiring authority can say, hey, this person, they went after it harder than everyone else. Sure. They want this job. And this is the person that I want on my team. Definitely. I think that's key, being on the offense of getting internships like you did, which then make it a lot easier to get a job. If people want to reach out to you after the podcast, what's the best way that they could find you? I enjoy using LinkedIn. So you can find me. My my name again is Chris Grablitz. My last name is spelled G-R-A-B-L-U-T-Z. My email address is uh, Chris at pvpros.com and uh, always welcome having people over at our Hoboken office as Benoit said it's you know here in downtown Hoboken great place you know no shortage of uh, sites to see down here and places to eat so uh, always open to having people stop by and and uh, spend some time that's great Chris thank you for being on the podcast this was really informative I really appreciate your perspective and look forward to having you on further podcasts and and thank you for your time today yeah thanks so much thank you Chris bye thank you so much for listening if this content is delivering value to you please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a 5 star review that helps us build this community and that's what we're all about right now building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can Thank you.